Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we begin, I, I want to let you know about a new show from Curious Cast that I think you might really, really enjoy. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using Internet trolls and hackers and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel this, this giant mystery with the help of those who know best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters even a former Russian KGB agent. Join Europe Bureau Chief of Global News, Jeff Semple. He goes on a journey to unravel how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. You can listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying the ongoing history of new music. Do it. Trust me, you'll love it. When you think about it, it's quite an accomplishment to become a one-hit wonder. Okay, your your career is essentially over after one song, but hey, at least you made it that far. Think about all the bands who have worked for years and years and years and never managed to enjoy even the briefest taste of success. Still, nobody likes that label. It's, it's demoralizing knowing that you've gone down in history as an artist with just one good song. It's hard to imagine it now, considering that they're one of the most influential groups of a generation, but this is exactly the sort of thing Radiohead faced earlier in their career. But with the help of producer John Leckie and a tour opening for Alanis Morissette, who was on her way to selling 30 million copies of Jagged Little Pill, they were able to overcome the pressure of following up the potential one-hit wonderness of a song called Creep. Let's pick up the story there. This is A History of Radiohead, Part 2. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Radiohead, with a two-year-old demo that became one of the singles from their very solid album called The Bends. Appropriate title, that. The bends is what happens to deep-sea divers when you come up to the surface too fast and the change in pressure does terrible things to your bloodstream. And that basically described how Radiohead was feeling at the time. Too much pressure. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and here we go with part two of our look at Radiohead. There's all kinds of medical imagery on the bends, and you can trace that back to the time Tom York had surgery as a kid. Remember that whole thing with his eye? 
and to the fact that many members of the group came down with some kind of health problem during the years between Pablo Honey and the Benz, especially Tom, who was having all kinds of intestinal issues. I told you it was kind of sickly. In fact, he had a rep of being the most sickly person in rock at that time. Johnny Greenwood wasn't all that well either. He had to wear a brace on his arm because playing guitar had caused a serious repetitive strain problem. And he also had to wear industrial strength headphones while on stage because his ears were so volume damaged that they kept bleeding. The album, The Bends, was dedicated to comedian Bill Hicks, the same guy Tool Reveres, and uh, he died of pancreatic cancer at age 32. And what's that on the cover? Well, it's two things. It's a picture of a plastic dummy used by hospital staff in Oxford to practice CPR, resuscitation. It's also a picture of Tom. The two photos were blended together digitally to create that image. Now, draw whatever conclusions you like from all that information. You would certainly be correct in assuming that everybody in the band needed some kind of resuscitation by this time. All right. Like the first album, the band started slow mainly because in the post-grunge world, it was so different. Britpop ruled the day. I mean, it was Blur versus Oasis. We had Elastica and Pulp. And as a result, the album was effectively a flop. At first, anyway. It never really caught on until Michael Stipe took Radiohead under R.E.M.'s wing and offered them support slots on their Monster Tour. And that was a huge, huge help. Not just the exposure, but the advice the band would give Radiohead over many post-gig beers. Radiohead and R.E.M. got along famously, and the bands would pull pranks on each other during the tour. For example, Michael Stipe liked to send a radio-controlled car onto the stage during Radiohead's set just to try and distract everybody. Radiohead also learned not to annoy each other. Colin often traveled with the road crew while Tom and Johnny stuck with the manager. Ed and Phil made sure they had their private space, too. That worked well. The bands also contained one of the most talked-about singles of the era— mainly because of the video that came with it. The video for Just was directed by a guy named Jamie Thraves, and he had this plot idea that had been spitting around in his head for a while, and when he heard the Radiohead song, he thought that the two concepts went very well together. If you remember, the video is set near Liverpool Station in London. For some reason, we see a well-dressed man just lie down in the street. A crowd gathers, but after a while, it's obvious that the man does not want any help. He just wants to lie there on the sidewalk. And all the dialogue between the man and the crowd is shown in subtitles. Now, the fact that this guy is lying on the ground really annoys the crowd because they want to know why he's just lying there. Eventually, he agrees to tell them. But here's the hook. The subtitles then disappear. We only see him partially mouthing the words, so we don't really know what he says. But as soon as the crowd hears, they all lie down on the sidewalk too. What does he say? Some people claim that they can read his lips, but the video is cut in such a way that it's really tough to do that. The band has never said what the man says, and the director is not talking. To tell you the reason he's lying down would deaden the impact, he says, and it'd make you lie down in the street as well. If you need to explore this mystery further, there is a long subreddit on the subject. Me? I, I just like the mystery. You do it to yourself, you do.
Famous Radiohead song, famous Radiohead video, but it was never officially released as a single in North America. Once again, Radiohead toured like crazy. By the time they were done with the bands, they had traveled across North America twice. There were six jaunts through Europe, in addition to tours of Japan and Australia. And Tom, as was his habit, got sick. His ears couldn't take the constant pressurizing and depressurizing that comes with takeoffs and landings, so they filled up with fluid, and he began to have trouble hearing. And if a singer can't hear properly, it's, it's very hard to sing on key. So Tom ended up having to wear special earplugs for a good portion of that tour. And the stress got to him, too. At one point, he begged the band's manager to put him on a plane back home to England. He just couldn't take it anymore. And the rest of the band wasn't feeling so hot either. And really, you know, who could blame them? In 1994, they had just two weeks off. And through mid-1995, they had maybe another five days. Then, at a tour stop in Denver, all their gear was stolen. Everything. And none of it was ever recovered. It was crazy, but it was necessary, and it worked. The bends turned into a critical and commercial success, thanks to all that road work. And thanks in part to Tom's demeanor and image in the press, a certain mythology began to build around the band. This is the kind of notoriety that you just can't buy at any price. Radio had continued to tour for the rest of the year, and by this time they were selling at arenas, regularly playing before 10, 12, or even 15,000 people. But the band was in rough shape. They ended up on a cold, damp tour bus for another swing through Europe, and Tom ended up with laryngitis again. Then, on November 25th in Munich, Germany, Tom not only lost his voice three songs into the band's set, but he blacked out. Just bam! Hit the floor. And that was pretty much it for the road that year. Radiohead finally got to take a vacation in January 1996, but at the same time, they were under pressure to come up with an album as good as, or better than, The Benz. They were being called the next U2 and the next R.E.M., so, you know, no pressure. What was their solution? Well, first, to scatter and let everyone get their heads together. Ed went to India, Tom went traveling solo in Europe, and everyone else stayed at home in England and spent some time alone with their families and friends. On February 1st, 1996, Radiohead went back to Canned Applause, their rehearsal space at the old farmhouse in Sutton Courtenay in Oxfordshire. And, at the insistence of their manager, the group went on a huge shopping spree, sinking some of the profits of the bins into a ton of recording gear. The bank account took a $250,000 hit, but the thinking was, since they wouldn't have to rent an expensive recording studio ever again, this would save the band money in the long run. So they wrote and rehearsed, and rehearsed, and wrote, and wrote, and rehearsed. And at one point, they had an entire album ready to go. But then they thought they could do better. So they scrapped everything they had finished and started again. But then came another tour, interrupting the flow. And Radiohead really couldn't complain, though, because the bands were still selling and the group was still in big demand. Other bands should have such problems. Besides, Radiohead had been given a rare pledge. Their record company had promised not to impose a hard deadline for the delivery of a new album. So in other words, they could take as long as they wanted. Working in the Apple Shed was okay, but it was far from perfect. A change of venue was apparently called for, so the band moved to a castle. And I mean a real castle. It was actress Jane Seymour's house. You know, Dr. Quinn, medicine woman? She likes to rent out her mansion and bath to bands who want to make a record in a funky sort of place. 
It's called St. Catherine's Court, and it's a real 14th century castle that was once owned by Henry VIII. Eight bedrooms, six and a half bathrooms, stables, a tennis court, and even a full church. And it's surrounded by 14 acres of gardens, literally fit for a king. And anybody can rent this place if you had, at the time, 10,000 pounds a week. So why spend this kind of cash, especially after spending a quarter million dollars building your own studio? Well, it's this dumb reason, but no one had ever installed toilets at Canned Applause. It's pretty difficult to work for hours on end day after day with no place to go to the bathroom. St. Catherine's Court is also very, very quiet. It's a very out-of-the-way place and therefore a nice place to make a record. And there's something about the acoustics in the ballroom and the library that make it worth the price. Radiohead was there for two months, and if you want to do the math, that works out to 80,000 pounds, which is, at the time, 175,000 Canadian dollars in rent. So try doing that in today's music economy. Johnny Greenwood was into a big Pink Floyd trip at the time, forcing the group to listen to all these old albums and demanding that they watch old Pink Floyd performance films. Meanwhile, Tom York found himself entranced with some old Johnny Cash records. The first single from this third record finally came out on May the 26th, 1997. And if it sounds like a bunch of different songs to you, you're right. According to Tom, Paranoid Android is nothing more than several half-finished songs stitched together. In its original form, it was more than 11 minutes long. It ended off with this over-the-top organ solo that went on forever, but they chopped out that part before they finished the album. And really, 11 minutes, a bit long for a single. So it was up to drummer Phil Selway to sort things out. Radiohead recorded the songs in three separate parts, each of which had been written at very different times and in different frames of mind. And then there were multiple versions of each part. So Phil had to sort through everything. When it was all finished, Phil had taken the best parts and pasted them together into a six-minute, 22-second single. Now, you got to be pretty confident to release a single that long, and frankly, nobody thought that this experiment would ever turn out to be the centerpiece of one of the best albums of the 90s, a CD called OK Computer. There is so much deconstruction required of the OK Computer album. Let's start by going through some facts about Paranoid Android. It's allegedly based on two things. The Beatles' Happiness is a Warm Gun from the White Album, uh, and also the fall of the Roman Empire. Yeah. There's the title. It comes from Marvin the Paranoid Android, one of the central characters in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series by Douglas Adams. Part of the song is in a tricky time signature, 7 eighth time. That wasn't by design either. It just kind of happened. There's a real-life character buried in the lyrics. You know where Tom sings about the Gucci little piggy in the second movement of the song? That's a reference to the time Tom saw a woman freak out in a bar in L.A. when somebody accidentally spilled a drink on her Gucci outfit. She caused such a scene that the incident burned a hole in Tom's mind. And finally, when Radiohead was finished with the song, they all said the same thing to themselves. This is never going to make it on the radio. Like I said, the song was released as a single on May 26, 1997, and in one week, it climbed to number three on the UK singles charts. It was their biggest British hit ever, and the album itself hit number one. Now let's look at the album in a larger context. 
Now, the title of the whole album is also a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy reference. Another character in the books, Zaphod Beeblebrox, says, Okay, computer, I want full manual control now. There is a theory that Radiohead told fans the exact moment they finished the recording of this record. If you look on the back, you'll see the number 18576397. Let's take the first four numbers, 1857. That could mean 6.57 p.m. And then there's 6 and 3, the sixth day of the third month. And then it finishes with 9.7. So it's very possible that Radiohead wrapped up OK Computer at 6.57 p.m. on March 6, 1997. And let's look at the cover. Where can one find that highway interchange that we see on the front? I can tell you. It's the interchange of Interstates 84 and 91, as seen from a window of the Hilton Hotel in Hartford, Connecticut. That's where the band stayed when they played the city on August the 20th, 1996. And a lot of internet snooping has narrowed it down to a picture that Tom must have taken from his hotel room on that day. Here's one more from the album. The title comes from a threat that members of Radiohead would make to each other if they did something terrible. Somebody was always afraid of a call from the Karma Police. Radiohead, and another track from their third album, the massively successful and influential OK Computer, released on July 1st, 1997. So, uh, yeah, they did manage to overcome the pressure of having to follow up the bends. But by doing that, they just made expectations even higher for the fourth record. What were they going to do? We'll pick it up there in a second. When Radiohead toured behind OK Computer, they ran smack into huge crowds and tons of press coverage. All of this attention, however, made the band more than a little uneasy, uncomfortable. They knew the record was good, but, uh, geez, settle down. Drummer Phil Selway had a new saying, don't read your press, weigh it. Tom had a t-shirt that said in French, don't swallow your press. Radiohead spent the rest of 1997 and most of 1998 doing two things, touring and accepting awards for being brilliant. Best Album Awards, Band of the Year Awards, even a bunch of Grammy Awards. They picked up one in the States for Best Alternative Album, but they also won a Danish Grammy. And yes, all this attention took its toll. If you want to see what the band went through, source out the Radiohead documentary film Meeting People is Easy. It's a great look at how fame can be so boring and so draining as the band winds their way through Barcelona, Paris, New York, and Tokyo. And once you see it, you'll understand why it took nearly three years for Radiohead to release their fourth album. They bought a little time with a 1998 EP entitled Airbag, How Am I Driving?, which basically consisted of extra material recording during the OK Computer sessions, but that really just kicked the whole can down the road. The tide of rising expectations had become a tsunami. A great album had to be followed by one that's even greater. So uh, good luck with that. This is a very freaky and very disturbing position to be in. Add in the fact that Radiohead had always been very uncomfortable with fame, and you have a real problem dealing with not only the creative process, but the whole psychic task that's ahead. you got to get your head together before you can do anything, and that is easier said than done. Tom, being the front guy and lyricist, obviously felt the most pressure. 
And when the band gathered in Paris in January 1999 to decide what to do next and to see what Tom had been working on, the answers were, we don't know, and nothing. Tom was so freaked out and so burned out that he couldn't seem to write anything. Meanwhile, guitarist Ed O'Brien somehow had it in his head that Radiohead was going to return to its roots and record an album full of three-minute guitar-charged pop songs. Radiohead management thought that was a good idea, too, so they were pushing for something along those lines as well. Meanwhile, the Greenwood brothers and Phil Selway were lost, had no idea what to do next. So, no wonder the resulting recording sessions were difficult and haphazard. It took a long, long time for Radiohead to figure out what exactly they were going to do. As it turned out, they basically, well, they burned it all down and they started from scratch, which is not an easy thing to do. You got to be really brave to do something like that. The fourth album emerged as what can be best described as an electronica record. Lots of loops and samples and artificial beats and treated vocals. Tom was deep into techno bands like the Aphex Twin and Otecker. Ed O'Brien barely picked up a guitar through the whole recording process. Johnny was pretty much forbidden to touch a guitar. Phil Selway became more of a computer programmer than a drummer. And the whole thing became an exercise in sound rather than just music. The vocals for the title track were created by Tom using a computer program he wrote himself. Was he singing or had he transformed his voice into an instrument? All depends on your perspective, I guess. Meanwhile, Johnny is playing an instrument called an Owens Martineau, an old electronic keyboard invented back in the 1920s. And you've actually heard one before. It's the thing that sounds like a woman's voice in the original theme for Star Trek. And the overall effect is pretty eerie. And then there's the song that leads everything off. It was the first song that Tom wrote on a brand new grand piano, even though there's not a grand piano heard anywhere in the song. And when Radiohead fans first heard it, there was no doubt that the band was going off in a completely different direction. Radiohead, with everything in its right place from Kid A, the band's fourth album. The recording sessions dragged on and on. From Paris, Radiohead moved to Copenhagen, then they moved to London, and then to their newly furnished private studio in Oxford. But finally, it was ready. The album came out on October 3rd, 2000, and the reaction was, uh, let's call it confused. But Radiohead was satisfied with the results. They had destroyed themselves and rebuilt the band as something brand new. Very daring experiment. And as experiments go, it was pretty successful. Radiohead's fifth album came up barely 10 months after their fourth. And that in itself was a big shock considering the time that passed between OK Computer and Kid A. And there's a reason for that. Radiohead had recorded so many songs for Kid A that they had lots of stuff left over. OK, not exactly left over. Radiohead preferred to categorize this stuff as material saved and held back from the last record. All the stuff that worked together, which is to say the ultra-experimental stuff, was released as Kid A. The rest was reserved for what would be called amnesiac. In other words, this new album was recorded pretty much simultaneously with Kid A, but is designed to be taken separately. What made amnesiac different was that it's more conventional. Guitars, real drums more normal song structures. Radiohead also rewarded their longtime fans 
by finally releasing recordings of songs that had become live favorites over the last couple of years. Back in 1999, this single was originally called Nothing to Fear. Within two years, it had become Pyramid Song. And if you think this sounds a little bit like everything in its right place, it's because Tom wrote both songs in the same week. Tom had gone to see a museum exhibition in Copenhagen and came up with this. Radiohead and Pyramid Song from the Amnesiac album. Now, this was an okay album, but for a variety of reasons, fans were left feeling a little unsatisfied. Now, the band was still great in concert, loved the experimentation on the record, but maybe it was time to stop screwing around and get back to the kind of stuff Radiohead was doing on OK Computer. So Radiohead kind of took this advice, but we'll get to that. For Christmas 2001, it was decided that a live album was required. It was a short record, eight songs, 40 minutes, which annoyed some Radiohead fans. But for the first time, Radiohead's live performance chops were properly and officially documented on CD. Radiohead reconvened at Ocean Way Recording in Hollywood in September 2002 to record what would become their sixth album. They really needed a change in scenery, so Southern California seemed to be the right place to go. Two things about this record. First of all, it was their last album under their original contract with EMI Records. That's going to be a very important point in just a bit. Second, Radiohead decided to pull back on the experimentation and get back to some kind of basics. So a lot of what we hear on the album are live in the studio takes, not the kind of created in a computer loops and samples that we got on the previous couple of albums. This record, all about performance. And things happened fast, about a track a day. And the whole thing was mixed in two weeks. Tom was on fire when it came to lyrics. He was caught up in the post-9-11 world with the rise of right-wing politics and the war on terror and the policies of the Bush administration. This was also the era of the catastrophic internet leak. The album, which they called Hail to the Thief, was released into the wild a full 10 weeks before the official release date. It floated around online in an unmixed and unmastered form from March until June. They never caught the leaker, so Radiohead just had to shrug it off. This was one of the singles. And like all the other songs in the record, it had a primary title and an alternative title. Most people know this as 2 plus 2 equals 5, but you can also call it the lukewarm if you want. With the release of Hail to the Thief, Radiohead's obligations to EMI came to an end. The label really, really wanted to re-sign the band, but Radiohead wasn't so sure. They didn't like that they were being treated or how they were being paid. They were also very concerned about how the company was being run. And admittedly, EMI was in a great state of flux when it came to management and ownership. So Radiohead held out, opting to give things a long, hard think. The decision that they'd ultimately make shook the music industry. By the time we reached the halfway point of the first decade of the 21st century, the traditional label hegemony over the recorded music industry was eroding. Piracy was killing CD sales. More and more people were moving online for their music, and all the lawsuits and threats and pleading could not stop the slide. Radiohead saw this, 
and they found themselves having to make a crucial decision. Do they stick with the status quo, stay with a major label, or do they go independent, stay unsigned, and jump into the great unknown and hope that they could figure out things on their own? We will go through all that on part three of our three-part Radiohead Profile. This program comes in podcast form. You can find plenty of them for free on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Rate and review if you can, because that sort of feedback is really important. My website is ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated all the time and comes with a free newsletter delivered right to your inbox. And we can also connect on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. All email correspondence should be directed towards alan at alancross.ca, and I do promise to write back. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. We'll see you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.